So John chapter 3, if you would turn there in your Bibles. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. I told the first service I have an ear infection, and so I feel like my head's in a trash can, you know. And I told them if I'm yelling at you, I don't mean it. But, but this service, I do mean it. <laughs> Father, we pray that you would teach us. Lord, whenever we open your word, uh, our first step should be asking you by your spirit to give us understanding, to teach us, Lord, so that we're not just reading words on a page, but that we're really able to receive the spiritual food that is ours from your scriptures. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would speak to us. We pray, Father, that downstairs, upstairs, online, wherever people might be listening, we just pray, Father, that, Lord, if any have not placed their faith in you, Lord, we pray that you would grab their attention and that they would have ears to hear what they need to hear today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So going back up to uh, verse 14, we covered it last week, but verse 14 of chapter 3, John's Gospel. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have ever or eternal life, excuse me. I almost said everlasting life. Some translations say everlasting life, eternal life. For God, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Last week, we looked at John 3.16, we kind of camped on that, I camped on that, um, and uh, we ended with that verse last week, and John 3.16, you know, I, I mentioned last week that it really is the gospel in miniature. Uh, if you're ever asked the question, what is the gospel, you could go right to John 3.16 and say, this is the gospel. And to really take time to read it and meditate upon it and understand what's being taught there. I think it's worth noting that um, when you're reading a book of the Bible, guys, it's not like a, it's not a novel, it's not a textbook, it's not merely a book of history or prophecy. I mean, it, it contains history and, and prophecy and so many other things, but it's a living book, the Bible tells us. These are living words, and so they're able to speak to us and to every generation, whoever has an ear to hear, as if they were hearing it for the very first time. And I think it's worth noting that as you're going through the Gospel of John, 
that John, you know, he opens in chapter one, and remember we spent a lot of time in chapter one of John, and he kind of lays the foundation, and then he begins to build upon that. And um, I think it's worth noting that because when, when you're paying attention to how John or how any gospel or, or Bible writer, how they open uh, their book or their epistle or their gospel account, it's interesting to note how they build upon it. I think of, uh, you know, we have all of our grandkids, and of course, long before our grandkids came, our own kids, Legos were a big thing. I go to uh, my, in fact, I, on my phone, I have many pictures of new creations, all built by Legos, from my various grandchildren. And I, I think of that, you know, you have these little blocks, and you add one upon another upon another, and it might not look at, like much at first, but when you're done with the project, you know, said there it is, you know, it's a boat or it's a whatever, you know, and that's how the word of God is. It just builds upon block upon block upon block. So John three sixteen, I think it's worth noting that God, according to chapter one and verse seventeen, that God gave Israel the law. Uh, it says that in verse 17, the first part of the verse, it says the law was given through Moses. And then the verse goes on to say, the same verse goes on to say that in essence that God gave the world his son. It says, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So that's important to point out because there's a lot of people that think that they will be saved or that they are saved by the keeping of the law. And you know that nowhere in the Bible, first of all, the law was given to the children of Israel, to the nation of Israel. And even when the law was given to the children of Israel, it wasn't just 10. We always think of the Ten Commandments because that's kind of culturally how we categorize things as Christians. But for the Jews, they were given 618 laws. And as you look at the laws pertaining to all sorts of things, Mariella and I were talking about a little bit of that between services. Nowhere in the law does God say, you keep this, you'll be saved. Nowhere does he say that. But in the gospel, the giving of Christ, we see that. That's the good news after all. You know, believe in Christ and you'll be saved. John 3.16, it begins with, for God. And I was uh, looking at that and thinking about God. You know, we, we like to, I was talking to the Lord yesterday as I was praying. I said, Lord, I, it's so hard because I, I want to approach you almost as if you think the way I think. Uh, like you're, you know, almost like a man, like I'm a man. And, and my understanding and my, um, you know, <laughs> concepts and, and uh, you know, thinking, are, are, they don't even come close to God. But God, he is a self-existing, uncreated, omniscient, omnipresent, do you know what that means in all places at one time? Omnipotent means all-powerful one. It says, for God so loved, this speaks of God's uh, benevolence, his kindness, his compassion, his love. It says, for God so loved the world, so that includes all, without distinction or exception. And then it goes on and it says, he gave, so Father is a giver in John 3.16. Father is a giver. He gave. 
And we're told the next line here, what he gave, his only begotten son. So father is a giver, Jesus is a gift. And you think of that, what a wonderful gift Jesus is. I think last week I mentioned as I was going through um, John 3.16, I think that I misspoke and I said that salvation was a gift. Salvation is not the gift. Christ is the gift. Salvation comes through Christ. You don't have Christ, you don't have salvation. So Christ is the gift. And it goes on to say, believes in him. So whoever believes in him, it's in Jesus alone. Salvation is in Jesus alone. It's not found in any other. And then it goes on, it says, shall not perish. And this tells us the will of the Father. The Father doesn't want anyone to perish, not one. And then, of course, you have the blessing that it ends with, everlasting life. And I mentioned last week, if you're here, that everlasting life is just not life that never ends, but it speaks of the quality of life. So it is that God-intended life that is for the believer. And we could only imagine what that's going to be like. You know, guys, when I don't know how you approach the scriptures when you read the scriptures, but when I read the scriptures, um, just the way I'm wired, different words jump out at me, especially if the words are repeated. And in our text today, there are certain words that are repeated in our few verses. For example, the word whoever, it's used twice. It's used in verse 15 and 16. And believes is obviously a word that kind of jumps off the page concerning our text. It's used four times. It's found in verse 15, verse 16, and then twice in verse 18. And then eternal life, used twice, again, 15 and 16. And then son is another word that kind of jumps off the page. So to me, if um, when I'm talking to someone, if I'm repeating myself, it's because I'm trying to make a point. And in the scriptures, if different words are being repeated, I think it's because the Holy Spirit wants to make a point. And I think that the point, again, is, is nothing that you don't already know, but the point is simply this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This is the gospel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But we have another word that jumps off the page to me because it's used a few times, and we see it in verse 18, and it's the word condemned. And so condemned tells us why we need to be saved. So verse 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That word condemned could also be rendered judged, to judge or judged or judge the world. It's, it means to distinguish, to give an opinion upon, to make a judgment. So Jesus, guys, Jesus came the first time not to judge or pronounce a sentence upon humanity, but to deal with the sentence, the judgment, that is already upon humanity. So I want us to think about that because this is really, really important. You know, bumper stickers can be silly, can't they? I was thinking, I'm not going to repeat it because there's a word in it that, you know, it's not a cuss word per se, but it's not appropriate. I don't, it's not a word that I use, so... But it's the, uh, you know, Jesus is coming and boy is he, and you know the rest of the, the uh, 
the bumper sticker. And it kind of gives you the impression that, you know, God is just angry. Jesus is just angry, and he can't wait to get back here to deal with things. And on one hand, I mean, there is some truth in that. At his first advent, his first coming, he didn't come to pronounce judgment. He came uh, so that he might die for the sins of the world and rise again on the third day and the atonement of sin and, of course, the work of salvation and all of that. But the Bible is clear that when Jesus comes again, then he will judge the living and the dead. So two advents, two comings, two different reasons behind his coming. But we're considering this right now. Remember the context, guys, that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a religious fellow. He is the teacher of Israel. He is well-known and respected. And as he's speaking to Jesus, Jesus talks to him about being born again and how important that is. And he makes it clear. And, and, and you know, some people say, you know, born again of water. Some people say it's baptism. Can I tell you what Jesus did not say? He did not say you must be born again and again. He said you must be born again. You've already been born. <laughs> There's not an again and again. It's not two things with water and the spirit. It's one thing. You must be born again. There's another again. And uh, so we looked at that, the importance of that spiritual rebirth that needs to happen. Of course, Nicodemus didn't understand these things. And so Jesus is explaining why one needs to be spiritually reborn. And so as he goes through this, he, first of all, declares that he is the means. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you know, we looked at that last week, Numbers. We saw that in the book of Numbers. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. And I noted last week that being lifted up, that particular reference there in our text, uh, not only spoke of his crucifixion, but it also spoke of his ascension. So he would be lifted up, in death, he would also be lifted up in his ascension to heaven. Guys, God's offer to pardon sin, to remove the sentence of condemnation, is through Christ Jesus alone, no other. Salvation doesn't come through keeping the law because no one can keep the law as God intended it. Uh, salvation is not a reward for our good works. You might be saying, Dan, I know these things. I mean, come on, this is elementary. This is, I mean, this is ridiculous. Give me some meat here, you know. Here's the problem, guys. There's a lot of people in a lot of churches that don't believe this. I'm, I mean, it's almost as if they believe with their mind doctrinally the right things, or at least they could kind of quote the things that they believe, and it, it sounds right, but when it comes to actually living out their Christianity, living out their life, their walk with Christ, they depend so much upon, well, it's my good works. Do you know that the Bible says that we are not saved by works, but by faith alone, and being saved by work alone, there's no boasting. We can't boast about, you know, well, I'm saved because I'm such a hard worker, you know. But then in that same text, I'm referring to Ephesians chapter 2. In the same text, it goes on to say, but we've been created in Christ Jesus. And that's not speaking about, listen, it's important when you read the scriptures that you're paying attention to the context. 
It doesn't mean that we were created, that is, oh, when we were conceived in our mother's womb and when we were born on the day of our birthday and everything. No, no, no. It's speaking about a new creation. We've been created again. We've been born again. We are his workmanship. So he's working in us. We are his workmanship for good works. So the good works follow salvation. The good works are not a means of getting salvation, but the good works follow the fact that we have been born again. Before as a Christian, I, um, you know, I, I always had a, I don't know why I did, but I, I always had a, a hunger for spiritual truth. I, I wanted to know, I wanted my life to mean something, I think, bottom line. And, and so I... I didn't uh, find, uh, I almost don't want to use the phrase, what I was looking for, but I, I, didn't, I didn't find uh, what I needed in, in Catholicism, being raised Roman Catholic, you know, very religious, so I knew what it was to be religious, you know, a little boy going to parochial school, wearing your uniform, being picked on by the public school kids when you walked home. I mean, that was rough being a Catholic kid, you know, in Norwalk, California, when I was a kid. But, uh, you know, there, were, there, was, there was no uh, real power behind that. And so, you know, started looking into other things. And, and you've heard the stories, you know, the Eastern mysticism and everything. And, well, maybe it's this and maybe it's that. And perhaps it's this over here and, and this type of thing. And so you start searching for different things. But none of them, you know, had power. They promised things. It was like the carrot on the end of the stick. But none of them could really deliver. And it wasn't until I came to faith in Christ that all of a sudden everything that I was looking for, everything that I, you know, had this void in my life for was found in Christ and Christ alone. But I remember as a young guy, you know, I... I, um, I like to do things. I like to serve. You know, I, I actually signed up to be a big brother when I was 18. And I remember going over to meet my little brother for the day. You know, that was so awkward, you know. And meeting his mom. And, uh, and you know, even that, it was just kind of a weird thing. Because as you're there, you know, I'm an 18-year-old guy. And I'm thinking, I don't know. Is this for him? Or for her. Because it just seemed like there was something weird going on there. But it was kind of like, you know, I want to do good. I want to do good things. I think that mentality was drilled in my mind growing up a Catholic because a lot of it's based upon works. Be good. Do the right thing. And the problem is, is that there are many Christians, many people who are in evangelical churches, you know, non-Catholic, non-Orthodox type of churches, and they have the same mindset kind of drilled into their mind. In fact, they would think, well, you know, are you going to go to heaven when you die? Yes. Why? Well, because I'm a good person. Or we might say things like, I have a good heart. This is why it's important that we know the word of God, because the word of God tells us that our heart is corrupt. So we don't want to say we have a good heart when the Lord says to his prophet Jeremiah, no, your heart's really in bad shape. You got a bad heart. And because of your bad heart, it affects everything else you do. It affects your thoughts, your reasoning, everything else, you know. We need 
Christ. Salvation is found in none other. Jesus came as the remedy for the problem that was already there. Guys, look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. When I read that verse, I think of the um, kind of the figure eight, you know, because as you're reading the verse, it, it, if you keep following, it just kind of comes around. It loops around, and, and you say, well, which is it? Well, it's all of it. It's, you, you stand condemned. Why? What have I done? You stand condemned. You were born in sin. You were born under the curse. You were born, in essence, condemned. Here's the reasoning. Why am I condemned? Because you do not believe. Oh, but if I believe, then I will not be condemned. It just kind of goes around. It comes around. And so this is why we need to know these things. We need to understand these things. Now, you might be here and you might say, well, you know, Dan, I'm a believer. Again, this is elementary, and, and I know these things, and I don't need teachings on, on salvation. I know, how that I'm, I know how I'm saved and all. Here's the problem that many times saved people forget how we're saved. I mean, really forget how we're saved. And many times, saved people forget what we're like before we're saved. When I first became a Christian, Tracy and I went backpacking with um, some folks from a church, a little church we were attending, and, and my whole thinking was different. You know, I grew up uh, kind of a hippie, and um, we would skinny dip a lot, and uh, it was just kind of that lifestyle, and we go backpacking, and we pack back into this lake back in the woods, and uh, the people want to start swimming, and I take off my clothes and jump into the lake, and uh, I wasn't, I wasn't completely naked but I was as good as naked and um, and the youth director came over and said uh, Dan don't do that and I honestly I had no idea I thought what this is you know this is what you do <laughs> you want to swim you don't have a swimsuit you you do what you got to do you know and there were some changes that needed to happen within my heart within my life kind of understanding the culture of Christianity and the church and everything and of course that happened as I matured in my faith in the Lord but guys think of how you were before you came to faith in Christ the way you valued things or didn't value things the way you thought about things you know you, you had this concept of right and wrong but it wasn't until you were born again born of the spirit that all of a sudden, you know, and again, it wasn't automatic, but in time, your thinking began to change. See, this is why there's a problem when people say, well, you know, I've, I've been born again, I've been a Christian for so many decades, and there doesn't seem to be any change. Your behavior is the same as it was before you became a Christian, and then you have to question, well, what's going on here? Why isn't there a change? Because, you know, there's this thing in the Bible is called sanctification. Sanctification is the means by which the Lord is making us holy. 
And the Bible says that we are sanctified. So upon receiving Christ, we are sanctified. And, and that kind of speaks of our position in Christ. Paul talks about the fact that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We are sanctified, man. We're done deal. But then the Bible goes on to say that we are being sanctified. So there's this ongoing work changing us day to day. And then the Bible declares that one day when we're in his presence, we will be sanctified. So all three are correct. There's no contradiction here. They're all true. It's important that we know how we're saved because we're surrounded by more people, usually, that are not saved, that are lost, that need salvation found only in Christ. We're around more people that are not saved than we are around people that are saved. And see, if we, if we look at people without recognizing their condition, there's not a sense of urgency. I think of, you know, growing up uh, during the 70s. I say growing up. I, I was a teenager in the 70s, so that's when you really do a lot of growing and, and a lot of Jesus people coming and sharing the gospel with me. And I've said it many times before that many of the Jesus people were very blunt. They didn't beat around the bush. There wasn't kind of the political correctness that there is today where so many people are afraid of offending people that we don't really get around to saying anything at all. But they would share the gospel with me, and then they would tell me, not in a mean way, but they would tell me that I was going to hell without Christ. And you know, I, I didn't need to be persuaded that I was a sinner, because I had proven that <laughs> over and over again by that time in my life. The fact that I was a sinner hellbound was something that I kind of had to Chew on, you know, wow, if there's some truth about this. Well, there is some truth about it. Verse 18, again, he who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Oh. Already. The remedy is, believe in the name of the only begotten Son, and then you're not condemned. What a beautiful message it is. It's offensive to people because we, we've, we've been sold a bill of goods, you know. We've been lied to, some of the younger people more than the older people. It depends on what time you grew up, you know. But we've been lied to. I think one of the biggest lies is that you need to love yourself before you can love anyone else. And the Bible, again, just going back to the Word of God, the Word of God says you already love yourself, and if you just simply love others as much as you love yourself, you'd be doing good. Loose paraphrase. That's what the Bible teaches. Uh, the problem is, is that self many times gets in the way of really seeing ourselves as we truly are. That goes into the, the next text, verse 19. But this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Light, darkness. Remember chapter 1 again. Going back to my introduction, chapter 1, he lays the foundation. There was a man, remember what John says? There was a man come from God. His name was John. He came to bear witness of the light. He says, the light, that light, that light, the light. He's speaking of Christ. He's not the light, but he came to bear witness of the light, who is Christ. Here we see, again, picking up on this idea of the light. A little slightly different word. The meaning is pretty much the same, but here in chapter 3, it no doubt speaks of the light that comes from Jesus, the light that's manifested from the Lord. We live around people who are perishing, and we have the remedy, we have the answer, we have the goods, if you will. And so often, you know, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Remember, he said, I'm not ashamed of it because it is the power of God, you know. Um, but many times we're ashamed of the gospel. We're ashamed of the gospel, not, I mean, necessarily, but what we're ashamed of is we're ashamed of being seen in a different light. We're ashamed of, of what people might think of us if we were bold about our faith. I was sharing with the first service that um, you know, we have a lot of people that are struggling in our little community. You guys know. You might know some of them. You might live with some of them. And uh, there was a fellow. We, we know him. We've had encounters with him. And he's an angry fellow. And He's usually ranting or screaming or yelling and, you know, and, and I shared with the first service that my reaction with the fellow in times past has been kind of this very, uh, not directly to him, but just in my own heart, kind of this, I wish that guy would just shut up. You know, the guy's just ranting all the time. I wish he'd just, you know, go away. And, uh, but on Wednesday night, Boaz, one of my son-in-law, uh, son my grandson, not my son-in-law, my grandson, uh, came in and said, Papa, there's a, uh, it would really be weird if I said son-in-law and they call me Papa. They don't, my, my son-in-laws don't call me Papa. They call me jerk and idiot. No, they don't. <laughs> but Boaz said, Papa, there's a guy out on the side, just wanted to let you know. And I said, okay, I'll go out and check. And so I went out and I recognized the guy. And, and there he is sitting on the sidewalk. And I just walked up and I said, how you doing? You doing okay? And, and uh, he looks up at me. And I wasn't quite sure what reaction I would get. But you know what I found, by the way, just a side note, that usually when you see people that are ranting and they're coming down the sidewalk maybe your way, and you're tempted to cross the street because you don't know what they might do. 
I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just simply suggesting that when you engage them, when you treat them like a person, when you say, hello, how are you today? That immediately they snap out of the raging and they say, hello. It's a weird thing. It's a telling thing. Anyway, talking to the fellow and we talked for a little bit and he was having a bad day. He got kicked out of uh, kind of a thing for homeless people. And I said, uh, you're having a bad day. And he says, I'm having a bad day. As he's talking to me, he's also talking to someone else that I can't see, obviously. And so he'd talk to me. He's answering my questions. And then he would say, what? Yes. Yeah. And then he'd turn back to me. And the voice would tell him different things. Eventually, the voice said to him, stand up. I guess, stand up when you're talking to this man. And so he was sitting on the ground. And he turned to the unseen person and said, stand up? Yes, OK. And he stands up. And he, now we're looking at each other. And I asked him, I said, do you know Jesus? He says, uh, he asked the person, do I know Jesus? Yes, I know Jesus. Yes, yes, I, yes, I know Jesus. Um, as he was talking about his woes, he would stop after I mentioned Jesus. He would stop and he would cross his hands like this and he would look up and go, oh, Jesus, Jesus. And anyway, it wasn't a long thing. I just talked to him for a little bit came back into the building and I was praying. My heart was heavy because I felt like, um, I felt kind of distressed by the situation because this isn't the first time we have lots of these folks in our community. Do you ever stop and wonder what their story is? I asked them, are you from here? Did you grow up here? Do you have brothers or sisters here? I mean, kind of that type of conversation. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, we say they're schizophrenic. They have mental illness, and I don't doubt that they do. It makes me feel helpless, though, as a Christian who has the goods, who has the answer, who has the remedy. I don't have it. I'm just a messenger of it because I've received it for myself and that is salvation and new life in Christ Jesus. But if it's just simply a mental thing, it kind of leaves me feeling empty, you know. I look at the scriptures and I see Jesus in, interacting with people who acted like that. Remember the fellow who lived among the tombs and he would cut himself? The whole self-harm thing and and they tried to bind him, and he had the strength, and he would be able to break the bonds. And people were afraid of him because he was just a madman, you know, and, and he meets Jesus. And you see these different encounters of people who are demon-possessed, and they come up to Jesus, and they bow down. As soon as they reach where he's at, they bow down. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but sometimes I picture maybe their hands like this and say, 
Now the demons are saying, what do we have to do with you? But the man's saying, Jesus, Jesus, we have the goods, we have the answer. Is it demon possession? For some people, is it demon possession? See, guys, as Christians, we should consider these things because if we're Christians in Christ, not because of us, because of Christ, we have, we have authority in Christ, you know, to pray for and, and kind of deal with the demonic. And I think so often, and this is what saddened me on Wednesday night because when I came in, I thought, I didn't even go there with the fellow. He reached up and he grabbed my hand. I'm a real germ-phobe. Germ and the Lord's constantly getting me, you know, in this. I remember as a young Christian, I went down to Mexico and uh, we were doing some ministry and this little boy sat on my lap and he was sucking his fingers. He's sitting on my lap. He has lice in his hair. I could see the lice on his hair. He takes his little fingers that have uh, saliva all over him and he touches my Bible, page of my Bible. And... His hands were muddy because of the dirt on his hands and the saliva, and he left a little mud skid on my Bible page. And the Lord was speaking to me and saying, I love him. And I think so often, you know, we have the goods, we have the answer, people... People stand condemned. People are condemned without Christ. I'm sorry. And we've got the answer. And maybe we can so easily say, this is for, this is for people who don't know Christ. I suggest that this is for people who do know Christ. Jesus was speaking to a religious leader when he spoke these things. And he's speaking of the importance of them. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you must understand your religion will not save you. The law will not save you. Your good works will not save you. Nicodemus, you need to understand that you stand condemned already. You're condemned already. But the remedy is, Jesus would say, me. I'm the remedy. Believe in me and you'll not be condemned. Believe in me and you'll be saved. Time is running out. People are perishing. Do you know, guys, I was talking to someone, a pastor, this last week, and I had said something I had closed in a prayer for pastors at our men's thing last week. And, and uh, I, I, I said, as I got up there, and I said, men, I'm talking to a, a you know, couple, few hundred men. And I said, I want you to know that these pastors that are lined up here, they're, they're no different from you. They're just men that have been, been redeemed by the same blood that you've been redeemed by. But they have a calling on their life, and they said yes to the calling. That, that's the only difference. And then I gave an exhortation. I said, Jesus is coming back, guys. And, you know, people, the guys, they cheered, and yes, Jesus is coming back. And then I added, but he's not here yet, and there's still a lot of work to be done. And pray that the Lord would put within your heart a burden to go out and maybe become a missionary 
or a church planter or an evangelist. That was my exhortation to the men. So when I was talking to my friend, a pastor this past week, Brian, Pastor Brian, he said, uh, he said, Pastor Dan, he, uh, Brian Williams is so respectful to me. He came out of this church, you know, and uh, I love that man. But he's always so respectful to me. And he says, Pastor Dan, I appreciated what you said. And I, I want to see that as pastors. We want to see men and women raised up. He says, why don't we see missionaries uh, coming out of our churches any longer? I said, I don't know, Brian. He says, why don't we see church planters from our churches any longer? I said, I don't know. I just thought of it this morning that maybe because we are so close to the Lord's return that maybe things have changed and maybe wherever you're at has become the mission field. And so you are a missionary, you know, by vocation, you work your job, whatever you do, you know, but you're a missionary. And if we could see ourselves as that way, you know, Nehemiah closed out the last service and in a prayer and he said so often we think that the pastor is supposed to be the evangelist and and the leadership of the church is supposed to do this and to do that and he says but that's not true it's never been that way it's God's people that are called to the great commission every one of us have been called to put our hands to the plow and not turn back and so I want to encourage you guys You've placed your faith in Christ. If you haven't, you need to because time is running out. But if you've placed your faith in Christ, do you know your life will be so much fuller? You know, Jesus promised abundant life. Would you ever stop and say, where's the abundant life, Lord? And then maybe stop and think, what is abundant life? I was at a pastor's meeting many, many years ago, and one of the pastors brought that up and he said, you know what, I think I realize that the abundant life in Christ is life of abundance. And then he went on and explained it. He says, sometimes it's an abundance of blessings. Sometimes it's an abundance of trials. It's a life of abundance. And we all agreed. We think you're right. But do you want to experience the abundant life Christian, I'm speaking to the Christian, then do what the Lord has called you to do. Share the gospel with people. I encourage the last service that maybe for you, because Tracy, my wife, my, she's such a godly woman, but many times she'll say to me, after I say things like this on a Sunday morning, she'll say something like, you know, Danny, sometimes I just feel like you know, I, I'm not around people. I'm not, I'm not, like I'm kind of dropping the ball. I'll tell you, my wife prays for people. My wife has compassion. Sometimes her compassion drives me nuts. I'm joking. But she has more compassion than I could ever have in 10,000 lifetimes. I'm just not wired that way. But she is. You know, guys, you come on up, bud, okay? Do you know the Jesus Revolution? I don't know if you guys saw it, but, you know, I enjoyed the film. Uh, it's based off of a true story. There's a lot of details that are not accurate about it. 
One of the things that, you know, really wasn't accurate, and I wish that they would have been more accurate, is that in the film, Jesus Revolution, they showed Kay, Chuck's wife, kind of reluctantly, you know, almost like she's scared of the hippies, bringing soup over to the communal house and everything. Do you know what the true story is? The true story, and it's kind of presented in the film, is that Pastor Chuck really disdained the hippies. He said these hippies need to take a bath and get a job. That was his attitude about it. And Kay, his wife, would weep over these lost kids. And Chuck, you know, I've been a part of Calvary Chapel for over 40 years, and Pastor Chuck would tell these stories, and he would say it was Kay. Kay would want me to drive her down to Huntington Beach to the pier, and would park down there. And he said in those days there would be hundreds and hundreds of kids just out there. And she would weep, and she would pray, and she had such a burden for these kids. I share that with you to simply say that maybe the water that caused the seed of revival to grow was the tears of people like Kay Smith that prayed, that had compassion, that pleaded with the Lord and said, Lord, please save them. Maybe that's your ministry. When we drive around and we see some gal that's out of her mind or some guy and, you know, guys, there's always someone new, isn't there? Last week, just a few days ago, we saw a new guy, haven't recognized him, but he's raging, you know. They rage. They're, you know, I don't know, it's the mouth or whatever it is, but they're just raging. And, and rather than look at them and just, you know, where are the police and they need to clean up these streets and everything, maybe we should say, Lord, would you give me compassion for this guy? This guy has a mom and a dad. This guy needs Jesus. This guy's out of his mind. Look at that gal. Look at that woman, you know. It should break our hearts when we think of what people have gone through, young people. It should grieve us when we think of people that are given to drugs and alcohol. They become different people. They're not, they're not what they were. They're not who they were any longer. And how low do you go? And the things that they stoop to, you say, Dan, that's extreme. That is extreme. But maybe if we consider the extreme and have a compassion for them, maybe the Lord will give us a compassion for our fellow man, for our neighbor that maybe looks like us and drives cars like we do and lives in homes or apartments like we do. And I hope you hear my heart here, that we would have compassion for the lost, that we would be his his voice for this generation that would give hope to people who have no hope. Would you stand with me, please? Help us, Lord, to be that. Please help us. I pray for myself. I pray, Lord, that you would give me more compassion for people. And I pray, Lord, that I would seize 
more opportunities, not waiting till they come to our doorstep here at the church to reach out, but to go out of my way. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would do that in us as well. Give us discernment, Lord. We know that there is the discerning of spirits, and we pray, Father, that you would give us that when we're dealing with someone that maybe is oppressed or even possessed by demons, and that you would give us the wisdom on how to deal with it, Lord Jesus. Lord, save our community. Save the people of our community. Save the people on the street. Save the people that are working jobs and, and they just don't care. They're indifferent toward the light, toward you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you'd save those who are not indifferent, but they rage against the light. They hate the light. We pray for them, Lord. We know that no one is beyond your reach. The whole world, without exception, without distinction, so loved, he gave his only begotten son. Thank you, Father, the giver, for the gift, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would share Jesus and his gospel to everyone we come into contact with. We ask for your help. Give us courage, we pray, and fill us with your spirit so we're not just speaking words into the air. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.